This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You've got Sam here, as usual, and today we're joined by Hector, CEO of Global Parametrics. Welcome, Hector. Hey, Sam. It's a pleasure being here. Typical way to start, particularly when we bring a new face onto the show. Perhaps you could tell our audience a little bit about your past. But before you do that, quick shout out to Steve Evans, the editor of Artemis and Reinsurance News, who so kindly introduced us a few months back. We've spent some time together. I'm fascinated both by your backstory, but also about what you're doing at GP. Yeah, let's start with your backstory. In these next 30 seconds, your listeners will be either intrigued or they will shout out. But I think the, the background... <laughs> make it good. <laughs> I'll try to make it good. I mean, the reality is my background is a mix of public and private sector experience. And I started in the government of Mexico working in developing financing and then moving to the insurance world, still in the government in a company called Agrasemex, which is more or less well-known in the ILS and insurance industry. Then I was intrigued by this world of sophisticated financial instrument. I was intrigued by what the World Bank was doing. I got their advice to go to study financial mathematics. I traveled to the U.S., got more excited about the global work, and said I could work in the World Bank, getting an airplane every single place in the world, trying to see how we can promote these innovations, but more from the consulting Sai, not really yet in the real risk-taking or entrepreneurial part of the equation. And then I was hired by Partnery, which is our insurer, and I was specifically working in the capital markets division that is located in the U.S. That's when I started to do real market-based product design. And then I had the opportunity to come back to apply that knowledge to the World Bank Treasury that, as you know, is a leader in, in the development of financial products for natural disasters. And finally, I jump in this wagon of entrepreneurship and follow some mentor, the founder of GP, Jerry Skies. And he gave me the opportunity to try to implement a vision that he had about creating a marketplace for parametric products. So it's a non-traditional path, a little bit in the convergence between multilaterals, private sector, public sector, kind of where all these actors get together to make innovations flow into the emerging markets. Awesome. Thanks. I know a couple of your former colleagues from the World Bank who we were just talking about. One of them said that people never leave the World Bank. It's such a great place to build a career, wonderful people, and generally just super talented people. But when they do leave, they do some really, really cool stuff. And it's interesting hearing about that, taking your interest in sophisticated financial instruments to the World Bank, then your time at Partnery, getting into the insurance and capital markets side of the industry, and then taking all of that learning and reapplying it to the World Bank Treasury. You're now taking that extensive learning, and you were recruited day one by, is it Jerry? Yes, Jerry. Jerry, to build global parametrics. So you went from big organization, one of the world's biggest organizations, to being a startup CEO and entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and also what global parametrics do? I think that journey was more than transcendental in, in my life. I changed continent. I brought my family into a completely different environment. They changed from the U.S. to Europe and 
coming to London and work with the English government and the German government to try to launch global parametrics. So being able to still operate in this public sector, people with a great vision, but then with the responsibility of creating a company that is sustainable, that can attract talent. That, to be honest with you, for me, was, was the most difficult transition. I never had to recruit people. Just in a lower scale, like when you, you recommend someone to join you in the World Bank, but this scale of you are a startup, you're trying to make a difference, you really need to have very good talent all the way from IT to, to structuring. How do you convince them? I mean, the first time I see myself taking an airplane and talking, I remember one of my first uh, contacts, Scott Putnam, for example, in a cafeteria in London with nothing, just papers and trying to talk about the great vision and trying to explain how global parametrics could build a marketplace for parametric products and uh, the reaction, of course, of this big ambition and then how do you land it and the faces that when they look, I remember the first interviews that for an industry that is so gigantic and there's a perception that is very limited possibility to add value, like people were perplexed how you even were attempting this. But I think the human resource element in our industry is very important. People that can structure, can add value in the way they interact with clients, the way they can deploy solutions and understand the problem. It's a very rare talent and it's very well paid, so it's very difficult to compete. So that was a very challenging. To the second part of your question, what does global parametrics do? Basically, we have a mandate to build a marketplace for parametric financial products related to natural disaster. And I emphasize the word marketplace because in our business model, there is a component dedicated to data analytics in areas of the world that there's scarcity, because our mandate is most in emerging markets. We have people focus on turning the data into financial structures and trying to solve problems through the use of financial products. And the third part is we have a, a fund where we have risk capital that we can deploy to back the transactions that we originate as a way to incubate innovation. That's awesome. And hearing you talk about, I get super excited, by the way, when we're, when we're talking to an entrepreneur, because building a company from concept to company, it's not trivial stuff. You've got to think about the strategy on one hand, the stakeholders on the other, and then all the operational execution. And you're right, you start with paper. I remember when we started this place, it was exactly that, just ideas on a, on a whiteboard. We'll come back to the entrepreneurial side of things a little bit later. But you've built a natural disaster financial product focused marketplace. Starting as a small company, trying to build a large scale marketplace in what's typically a fairly slow and uninnovative industry, although it's getting better. And I'm talking about the insurance industry when I say this. How are you finding it? Is it possible? Is it harder, easier than you thought? I think there's two ways to answer that question. I would say one from the client perspective, because we were mandated to do financial products, not at the retail level, but at the institutional level. And we work mostly with investors, not really insurance. It's like, how do you convince? Most of them are first-time buyers. They never hedge. They usually are exposed to natural disasters in the way they allocate capital and the way they do the investment decisions or in the way they respond to disasters. But a lot of time they're not doing hedging. So just getting into their system that hedging makes sense and there is a, an investment that can have a, a good rate of return and provide some, some value other than their business. That is one challenge, the client part. So you need to do a lot of, because you're a small company, the hurdle that you need to 
go through is higher. So you need to demonstrate immediately that you add value, bring analytics and products that make sense for them. So you, your threshold is very high. I think on the side of the market, there is also a different threshold and it's more to establish your credibility as a team that is not a consulting and that can really do structuring, that you have the mentality of risk taking so they take you seriously because their first intuition is look at this small company and say, okay, yeah, you're doing some consulting, but are you really like coming into this with the incentives and the mentality to, to build a market that you, you really have this, the advice to allow clients to understand what is required to execute a transaction? That's because they have a lot of business models and their argument is there's a lot of people trying to build a market but uh, people understand the undergrading that there's not a lot, particularly in the lower tier companies in terms of size. No? Those are the three main main challenges on both the client side and the market. Awesome. And then in terms of the client side, can you talk through who some of your, your clients are today? So basically, we're trying to specialize in those clients that have a global exposure because we think that one of the competitive advantages is that we're looking at the world from a technical perspective and generate data different than a lot of our competitors. So we focus on those institutions that have multiple assets. So I think for a couple of reasons, one is the technical. So basically, we, we take difficult geographies as long as easier geographies and we look at their portfolio. But the second is when you are operating at this investor level, the hedging part becomes more efficient because they're packaging different exposures and you're helping them to make more efficient decisions on hedging. So most of our clients can be like investors that are specialized in certain segments. It could be microfinance, it could be renewable energy, it could be multilaterals that are they want to do like programs tied to their investees, for example, in small medium enterprise banks. It could be the humanitarian organizations that are trying to deploy capital faster, or it could be corporates. Okay. When I'm speaking to an entrepreneur, I always like to break down the conversation into four areas that generally feedback from the podcast is areas people like. The first is funding, second is product, third is client, and the fourth is talent. We've talked a little bit about product and client already. Let's talk about funding. When you start a business, you've got to know you've got some runway. How did you guys go about it? I think this is probably one of the most unusual cases that you will ever heard. I think that's the, the start, by the way, to a really good answer. <laughs> yeah. I want to be very frank about it. I mean, I don't want to pretend. I mean, the founder, Jerry, comes from academics. He was never an entrepreneur. He had a great idea. And because of his natural ecosystem was the government institutions and because of his work was tied to that, he didn't have the entry to the VC world or it was not natural to him. So a lot of his business plan was emphasizing the social impact part and he got traction in the government side of the equation. That's why our initial funders were the government of Germany through a fund that is called the Insure Resilience Investment Fund. It's operated by Blue Orchard and then DFID directly, the Department of Foreign Affairs here in, in England. And those were the early investors. And if you look, it's very rare, like usually the, the British government invests through the CDC or an investment fund, they did directly. So it's an asset that they took based on the vision. So we started by a non-traditional set of investors as we're trying to continue the evolution of the company and explain this unusual start to a lot of uh, private investors. It's difficult to understand why the governments were involved and then the, in the transition, how can they coexist? Mm -hmm. Can they be a truly a public-private partnership? There's space for that and there's skepticism on both sides of the, of the equation. I think that's a story as we are speaking. You're trying to create this common space where 
the private sector can come and you can see provide the social impact, but you make the business sustainable. So that's an ongoing dialogue. You and I have spoken about this before, but particularly where you're talking about things like financial products around natural disasters, right? That that definitely incorporates or has a necessity for public-private sector cooperation. And I think it's also something that may have been lost on a lot of entrepreneurs if it perhaps didn't come with an academic background. So I think your partnership between yourself and, and Jerry is probably being a significant contributing factor to that. Do you think that's a fair statement? I totally agree with you, yes. So we've got the funding piece done. Talent is another big one. When you have grand ambitions like you do, you have to pull together the right team to execute. How have you gone about finding the best people? Where are you finding them? And how are you looking to build the team both to the level you've done today, but then you know, building it in the future? I'm talent, we basically, honestly, have been scratching using all kinds of different strategies, going from asking people that uh, have very relevant positions in the market to ask for waivers on their non-compete to their bosses so, because emerging markets is not considered a threat to their business and securing their advice through part-time engagements, but very relevant all the way to uh, young people that come with a scientific background and, and you need to train them. But to be honest with you, when you're a startup, you cannot pay big relocation packages and you're accepting sometimes part-time engagement. So you, I just hired a, a database expert that is located in the Seychelles. Wow. And the reason is, I mean, we opened the position for database architect for a long time and we interviewed in the U.S. and in the U.K. and we didn't have the correct match. And it turned out that this professional was working in a World Bank project, had a lot of uh, very relevant GIS expertise in resilient-related projects and risk management. And he will be in transition to Europe, but we cannot offer you immediately, so you, do it through, you have to do it through several months. We have colleagues in Zurich, becoming a very nice hub of people from the industry that are tired a little bit of the corporate world. That's the other type of profile, a little bit like like colleagues that have successful corporate world, they want to be a little independent and they know they have a lot of uh, ideas and capacity to execute and they're confident enough that they, they're not afraid about being unemployed and they just go and, and try something different. So it's a little bit of a mixed people that are really willing to explore. Some people call them cowboys. I mean, we have, a, I call it the coalition of people with different interests. But it's tough. I mean, you look at how much time you need to spend in talking about GP and finding a match. You end up realizing. I remember when I started, I read the Google book. Mm. And they were talking about how Google at the beginning, how much time were the manager and the people spending in terms of recruiting. At that time, they were talking about 50% in their week-to-week work. And I thought that was very high. But then you realize how much of a success factor it is. You need to build that collision of skills and interests that allows you to move forward. No, HR has been, a, and talent has been a very sobering lesson of this entrepreneurship world. Yeah, I guess you know, managing people is what it's all about. And you know, certainly as we built our business, creating this sort of patchwork quilt of different skills, different attitudes, it all you know pieces together to create the unique fabric of any company. But you can never spend too much time on it. It's, it's so important. Just in terms of geographic footprint, I know that you split your time well, you're constantly on the road, but how are you building the geographic footprint and how important do you think it is having people with proximity to each other? I think in a business where you depend on the, a lot of uh, technical knowledge built in your client to be able to buy a service, it's very difficult not to be close to them. 
So I think the fact that we're targeting the institutional level buying, so of course we're focusing in the US, Washington is a big hub, of course, London. So our model is not about uh, doing retail distribution, so we're not traveling to every country in the world, but still, for example, we had to set a permanent presence in Washington because you really need to spend a lot of time in the coffees and besides meeting to get people to and the feedback Got to that we all our pavements. Yeah. yeah. So even to get uh, I can tell you like there's a couple of very interesting concepts that are reaching the maturity, like literally potentially within days, but it took a year. And uh, a lot of the time you you are educating people that doesn't come from the insurance world, but they can use the benefits of these tools into the way they are deploying capital or the developing programs. But most of these people have never thought about adding hedging as part of the equation. So that requires a lot of back and forth. The flying and flyout model is very difficult. We have developed a very good API system to access the data and trying to be as friendly as you can. But still, like for this business where you kind of need to build this knowledge and internalize it in the, the current uh, corporate decision-making, it's difficult not to be there. I hear you. I'm going to try and focus on a little bit of uh, advice for our listeners. As someone who's built a business and you're nearly three years old, right? Yes. You've been through all sorts of different learning experiences and you know, having built some businesses myself, some of the scars are there that remind you of how not to do things in the future, but it's all a learning process. What pieces of advice would you give the people that are listening who are thinking about starting their own business? If I look backwards on what is probably the major improvement is that how you define your minimum viable product particularly in areas where they are complex technically. And, and you always, I mean, depending on what type of business you are, there's uncertainties coming from different parts. In my world, when you're doing innovation and you're testing innovative ways of dealing with modeling, just making the judgment about what, what are the paths that we're trying and, and being able to filter them and come to a, a reasonable way of defining minimum viable product has been very challenging. And of course, the other part is to really judge what your organization and your team can be. I think if I look backwards, I probably was too ambitious in what we can do. And that creates a lot of frustration because if you are not careful enough, I mean, I, I understand that as an entrepreneur, you need to have a grand vision. But if it's a grand vision, but your tactical approach gets out of reach and your, your employees start to get frustrated, but they don't see how they're reaching. So I think it's how you combine this big vision with the tactics is something that I honestly probably didn't have enough uh, training to be judged. This is like looking backwards in retrospective. Yeah, hindsight's a beautiful thing, but you know, that's all being reactive and I guess learning as you're on the journey is all part of it. Let me just play that back. So defining your MVP and then it's it's about patience, combining patience with sort of tactics and strategy. And I guess not rushing, but being reactive. Really, really useful. I have a couple more questions. One of which is a bit forward-looking. I'm sure it's probably a question you get asked an awful lot. If we had to look forward to, I don't know, five, ten years, whatever it may be, but to a, an ideal state, where does GP end up? What does success in five years' time look like for you? I think uh, GP hopefully will benefit from, there's a big trend in the market led by important efforts, like, for example, Mark Carney and um, Michael Bloomberg. I think this task force for disclosure or climate-related information is creating a, a momentum for more corporates to look at and report their exposure to natural disasters. I mean, if you look at Standard & Poor's, they did a little bit of uh, research 
looking retrospectively to 10 years, looking, going through every, every investor report. They quantified around 15% uh, of the companies have in the last 10 years already make comments in their financial statements, that it is a weather climate and talking about impact. That, that leaves aside the unexpected ones, but with substantial impact of 6 10% on top-line revenue. And that was the last 10 years. Looking forward, I mean, look what happened in California with the electricity company. I mean, also Bloomberg made a very interesting article in the LA Times where he was basically arguing, nobody pay attention to climate change. You have this electricity company now, and people don't realize there was a pension fund from California that had invested a lot of money. Those pensioners are going to lose their money. California is going to lose the electricity company. They will pay more for electricity. So I think this idea of that climate really creates economic impact is permeating. And the more incentives for, for disclosure, the more chance for company like us to show that you have value added. And it's interesting because it not only happens in the corporate world, look at, I was looking at the research paper from Imperial College in London, and they were trying to quantify what's the cost on the sovereign debt in countries where they are exposed to natural disaster. And they, they focus on a subsegment of countries called the Vulnerable 20 countries that are represented mm -hmm. in the UN. They estimate that these countries are already paying around 120 basis points more for the sovereign debt due to, wow. to climate volatility, and that's retrospectively, so that's like 40 billion for these countries. But for these same countries, looking forward due to climate change, they're expecting that amount to go to grow to uh, fourfold. So as these economic impacts are starting to permeate, people, investors are trying to push for more disclosure. We see more potential clients where C-suite executives will be more receptive to the idea about how to proactively create disclosure and look at products. So I think GP is counting on these important efforts to give us a more like a larger playground where we can pitch. Amazing. And I couldn't agree more. Having, you know, obviously we, we spoke earlier about spending time at Davos. The economic and social impacts, you know, around climate change are such a talked about topic. I mean, it was the number one global risk again for, I think, the third, fourth year. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, running. And, um, and it's not going unnoticed. But for companies that are providing the, you know, the picks and shovels to this gold rush, I think it's going to be a really, really exciting time. And it sounds to me like Global Parametrics is perfectly positioned. Now to, you know, the lighter end of the podcast. And I always like to find out a little bit about, particularly with entrepreneurs, in fact, like yourself, people that have been really influential in your past. It sounds to me like Jerry has played a big, big role. And perhaps there are people at the World Bank. But who have been some of your iconic role models, some of your mentors in your journey so far? So interestingly enough, I was working in the government of Mexico. And I, the first time I saw the World Bank from close proximity was a uh, a delegation that was led by a gentleman called Rodrigo Chavez, which is, to my knowledge, still was the director of uh, the World Bank, I think, in Indonesia. And he came and I see this Costa Rican guy sitting with very senior people in the government of Mexico and talking about big projects and about all the countries where they were working. And that was a big influence. That's when I started to to look into how can you connect to this international world and how you add value. Before that... I was thinking that I would go to investment banking. I was very like influenced probably by the information I get from college. So I was actually applying to a job in Bank of America and I didn't end up going there because the gentleman that I was substituting decided to postpone his MBA. I met Jerry later, like uh, 
when I was moving into the, the insurance world, he came, he tried to recruit me to do a PhD in ag economics. And the only reason why I didn't accept it is I didn't want to constrain myself to ag. I thought that was super important, has a lot of social input. But once you go into that world, you get a little bit, a little bit constrained. I also have to say that in the World Bank, throughout my career, I met very important colleagues. One special is Madeleine Antonchik, which was uh, the World Bank treasurer and uh, was a very important partner when we just did the largest world derivative transaction in Uruguay. It was a very important uh, figure in terms of leadership and how to work this international bureaucracy that is very challenging with, with your ideas and, and push forward. Today, that's another role model for me. I'm not surprised to hear World Bank colleagues listed. The World Bank is kind of renowned, not just for its high standards, but for doing many, many world firsts. So I'm sure there's a, a ton of mentors that you've got in the World Bank. Not a question I normally ask, but having been to Mexico, which is such a beautiful country, I've got to ask it. And I'm sure that people listening want to hear it. Where's your favorite place in Mexico? To be honest with you, I would say the place of my birth, Mexico City. It's a, it's a chaotic city. It has probably the best and the worst. But the contrast and what it has to offer is still fascinating. I still go there and now like probably as a tourist and I focus in areas where I usually didn't focus. But if you look, Mexico used to be like a lot of towns and you integrate that in this massive city and contrast and, and the history. And you have layers of history, a little bit like Europe, like the pre-Hispanic and then the Spanish, everything, fantastic uh, food and people. So in all the chaos, maybe because I don't live anymore there, living in the yeah. chaos everywhere, but now going to the chaos a little bit softer and and look at the layers of such a complex city, it's fascinating. I've only ever been through Mexico City, and what you've just said is enough for me to go back. Yeah. My favorite place where my wife and I went was this town called Valladolid, I think it's called, not far from Chichen Itza, and there was this perfumery that has a one-bedroom hotel. It's like kind of decadent. It was really beautiful. But in the evening, maybe six o'clock, the owner of the perfumery gives you the key and you end up locking up the whole perfumery when you go out for dinner yourself, which, granted, puts a bit too much responsibility on you. I didn't drink anywhere near as much beer and wine as I wanted to, but what a special place. I remember you mentioned that and we look at the internet. I was so intrigued that I went and looked at it myself and I think you found something very unique. It's a concept that is not very common, but I think you were able to find a town that has enough of its personality and offers you the concept of uh, interesting Mexico, but in a very quiet place. And so I, I think you were very lucky. I cannot see a lot of, if you wanted to replicate that, I could not. Then I could probably name you small hotels and town places, but that kind of special, like, one suite tied to this is very unique, so I'm glad you ended up there. It was very cool, and it was called Cookie Cookie, C-O-Q-U-I, same again. In fact, maybe mentioning on this, they're going to throw in a free night there for advertising. We haven't done that yet. I'm looking at Paul, who edits this. Maybe we should start thinking about sponsorship. That's a good point. I was not even thinking of the commercial angle of what we were discussing. There we go. Three nights, please, for three mentions. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure seeing you again, Hector. And firstly, good luck. I don't think you need it. But secondly, let us know how we can help. You know, I'm very passionate about what you're doing. I think the public-private sector angle is an uncapitalized opportunity. And I think you're pulling together a great team to do it. Thanks thank for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. 
The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners' investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.